from what we can gather, you're a wasteologist. I am a wasteologist, or sometimes people call themselves garbologists. <laughs> I really like garbologist. Which yeah, is your preference? I think I like garbologist because it puts me in, in good company with some people who, who actually do spend their time going around digging through garbage dumps for information. Did you always dream of being a garbologist? Um, I've always been interested in waste ever since I was a little girl. So I don't think I ever saw it as being a central career or even a research part of my research until, I don't know, I just suddenly fell in love with the topic uh, and realized there was a topic to study when I was in graduate school and figuring out what my PhD would be. So were you doing sort of basic biology before that or? Political science. Political science. Yeah, and economics. I did both of those as an undergraduate. Wow. And so that implies that trash or waste is a political problem, which probably isn't how most people think of it. Mm -hmm. It's a deeply political problem in, in many ways. I mean, I think people just think, oh, waste, it's, it's technological. We just either put it in the recycling bin or we put it in the trash can and we flush it down the toilet or we drop it in the streets and gets taken away and and um no fuss no muss as they say mm. but no i think i think the politics of who picks up waste where it goes um is and what waste means for a society is a uh, very very political very social i think looking at where waste goes is probably one of the most obvious indicators of inequality and environmental injustice within a society it's, again just follow your nose and and you 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 can see who are likely to be the poorer people or the marginalized or the outcast people. They live around the waste. The waste moves, you know, that that's where the, the, the dumps or the incinerators are sited. Um, waste, what happens with waste can shape the fate of politicians. If people see waste piling up on streets, city mayors or, or even national governments can be overthrown or at the very least weakened. It's mm. a lot of it is is highly political. And then waste regulation. Some people claim that um, the reason we have city governments comes out of efforts to regulate or to stop organized crime controlling waste collection. I want to go back. That was Whoa. I can't go on. Was there a garbage coup at some point? A garbage coup. Uh, <laughs> well, I can give a couple of examples. One is um, Margaret Thatcher, Prime Minister of, of Great Britain from 1979. Very, very influential figure in the 20th century, certainly in the second half of it. And um, one of the reasons they say that she won over the Labour Party where there'd been a lot of strikes was there was a garbage strike and waste piled up in the streets and it became a very, very visible symptom of what was wrong with the Labour government, and that ushered in um, the woman who was probably the central architect of, of um, uh, sort of uh, cutting back of free market capitalism as a way to run countries and, and run politics. So that was quite significant. And uh, you see the mayor of Bogota a number of years ago was overthrown as a result of a waste crisis um, and the government of Lebanon was severely weakened, not overthrown, by uh, a trash crisis a few years back where they lost a contract with an international waste management company and there was no one to pick up the waste. And that's all municipal waste? Like this is stuff yeah. piling up in front of people's houses? It is, very much so, yeah. Has anybody thrown a coup over industrial waste? Hmm. Nuclear waste, I think, mm. and deeply hazardous waste have been the main the main problems. Have they led to that level of political change? Well, they're not as visible, mm. but I think that um, certainly the impacts of nuclear explosions and testing definitely made us realize what nuclear energy waste, nuclear power waste could do. Um, and... I think hazardous waste has generated some significant political crises. Love Canal in the U.S. and upstate New York in what the is that? 70s. I haven't heard of it. Oh, gosh, Love Canal. I mean, I have to think back to the basics. It was very, very um, critical at the time. And I think Love Canal was where I think there have been a lot of dumping mm. of chemicals 
and waste and um it came out through i think a lot of a lot of different health impacts i mean the funny thing is you know love canal is sort of blurred in my mind with a lot of other sort of crises of the 70s because hazardous waste was it was really becoming apparent that hazardous waste was being dumped in all sorts of places and that led to um superfund mm-hmm. uh regulation in the federal government which is actually one of the few ways in which the federal government here is involved in waste and one of the things one of the very few things that the Trump administration didn't really go after in the way that it really cut a lot of different parts of the of the EPA but Superfund retains a lot of support can you explain Superfund Superfund is a, a particular form that provides funding and and regulation for cleaning up old hazardous waste sites of which there are many Mm. where people have eaten from small like dumping of sort of barrels of hazardous waste to large-scale decontamination contaminated sites from um factory facilities from incinerator facilities things that take a lot of money to fix yep expensive are there is an industry paying for a lot of that or does it come out of like government projects it comes out of government government funding Mm, mm, mm. yeah yeah. So is was there a shift in the 70s towards a different treatment of trash? Because right now it seems like the most visible example of garbage is municipal garbage. Like you say, the stuff that piles up in the streets. There seem to be, I guess there's exceptions to this, but there seem to be fewer rivers that are catching on fire filled with, you know, decaying industrial drums than ever before Mm -hmm. is that because Mm -hmm. there's less of that kind of pollution or is it just better hidden um oh (laughs) there's less and i think there's less there's many there's much more attention paid to um getting rid of it safely and effectively i think the legal framework around hazardous waste and how people can be sued for dumping it is quite clear that doesn't mean that doesn't happen uh but it also means i think i think that people look too much I mean, municipal solid waste is very visible and a very critical problem, but people actually don't look enough anymore at, in my field, at construction demolition waste, which is big, hazardous waste, nuclear waste have kind of fallen off. When I first studied waste, I was like, you've got to look at hazardous and nuclear. What's so interesting about the stuff that we throw out every day? (laughs) That's not where the, the big money is. So it's sort of flipped since then, but it, it's actually still the case that I think around 70% of waste by volume is industrial. Mm. Well, that's Not- a hard thing to track because at some mm. point, even municipal waste has industrial products or commercial products or commercial products, yep. right? Yeah. 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 And I think that's sort of some of the displacement to the consumer has been the, the, the waste from production is in sort of single use objects. You know, you just don't have that same level of, 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 of industrial waste. So I think that's, that's definitely part of it, but I think it's also things like nuclear waste have really fallen off the radar. Mm-hmm. I find my students are very unaware of the extent, the fact that we have not yet on in the entire planet safely dispose of a single gram of nuclear waste. Mm, not much to do with it. High level. Nope, not much. We could shoot it into space. That's been suggested. That seems like it could uh, go sideways really quick. Someone told me <laughs> that the hardest place to go is the sun in the solar system. Just physically uh-huh. speaking. Just physically speaking. So it would just probably lock it somewhere in orbit. Eventually it would crash back onto Earth. Sounds mm-hmm. like a sci-fi novel waiting to happen. Or in our ship oh, yeah. or something worse. Yeah, seriously. Yeah. Um, and we already have enough space junk. So that's um, something that we don't want to add to that. Uh, so what if, um, what if you yeah. ejected it into the space junk and detonated it in low Earth orbit in order Two problems to at once. get rid of the space <laughs> junk? Well, it would get rid of some pesky um, humans as well. <laughs> it would be very, very dangerous. Just um, yes, that would be something. Oh, no, I mean, there have been novels in science fiction about sort of chemicals and pesticides in space. There was a very famous book at the time by John Wyndham in the 1950s called The Day of the Triffids, which mm. is still made into movies and TV shows. And 
humans are, are made blind at the beginning of it and they think it was because of chemicals and poisons that have been put into space that had fallen down. Hmm. So it's It's been in that science fiction in the 50s. So you can see that I think back then there was much more awareness and concern about the toxicity. Um, have you seen any salient proposals for nuclear waste disposal? Uh, not great ones, uh, but the idea would be to find um, sites that were incredibly geologically stable, uninhabited, or not of value to humans, um, that where uh, the waste could remain for tens of thousands of years. And there's actually some work done on um, how do you signal to post us civilizations that what is here in 10,000 years is mm. still highly hazardous Don't in touch. this bunker or wherever it's been put. And that's so that's one problem that's occupied people in interesting ways, but also just simply finding the land. There have been offers. There was like the um, uh, the Australian outback meets the geological um, criteria. Mm. But what about uh, Antarctica? Antarctica is um, is not would not be appropriate. And it is currently regulated as a zone of peaceful research. Mm. And I think it would be very hard to take any kind of waste there. That would be, that would be difficult. Um, the pure disaster of that would be hard to come back from. Yeah. Yeah. The only place that's really offered itself is Russia. <laughs> Interesting. Yeah. I think it's one of those cases where you don't, if someone volunteers for it, you don't want to give it to them. That's probably so, true. That's so noble for Russia. Wow. Well, they'd get all that waste and maybe they could use it for something again. You know? uh, and a lot of fees for storing it. Yeah, there you go. A lot of money. And again, you could blackmail, I guess. But yeah, there was a proposal <laughs> made to dump waste in the nuclear waste in Australia by a company that was not Australian. Hmm. And I think not even taking into account the, the importance of the land for Australian Aboriginal peoples. That hmm. was a whole other piece of it that was... Um, no, there was no one really there physically all the time, but it still was land that was sacred to peoples who were still existing. And that's a problem you're going to run into pretty much anywhere on Earth at this point, because there's mm -hmm. no piece of land really that no one wants or no one uses. There's just right. such a density of people. Well, you've mm -hmm. almost made it to Mars. Yeah, that's true. Well, what about <laughs> what about burying it in the molten part of the Earth? Is that anything that people talk about? Yeah, that people have talked about almost everything. I I think that that's such so uncertain, mm. and I think the heat, the chemical reactions, I think make people concerned. I imagine the cost is prohibitive. Mm. Um, it seems like the oceans or the space would be more cost effective. Can't believe I'm saying that, but but yeah, we basically just need to stop producing the nuclear waste. Well, it's interesting you bring up cost. I've noticed a lot of your work focuses on the different incentive structures for improving the waste situation on Earth. And I think that's mm -hmm. really interesting. Like you mentioned that things have actually improved industrially since the 70s. How much of that was driven by making it affordable, profitable, however you want to put it, for the polluters to, you know, to recycle their products? Sorry, not to pollute more. <laughs> um, I think that that actually um, is something that is incredibly helpful. I think that definitely rules and regulations, higher costs of landfill disposal. That's been a big um, effort around the world to increase tipping fees, landfill, landfill taxes, that sort of thing. Um, what would I say about and incentives? I think just generally there's been because I think waste is something that concerns a lot of people, there's really been a big race to come up with technologies that don't generate as much waste or don't generate as much dangerous waste. And then, of course, we get to recycling and reprocessing. Mm -hmm. And uh, this ever since the 1970s, in many parts of the developed world, that's been a big part of municipal waste um, collection and management practices. So um, we're definitely encouraged to recycle paper plastic aluminum food waste plant waste but there's, there's larger things that never seem to cross that threshold right there's there's things that are municipal waste that like you said there's programs for it and we'll get to the sort of the global 
patterns of moving that around. But the larger wastes of, let's say, houses that are only made to last for 30 years, 50 uh-huh. years, uh-huh. or a house that someone's lived in for 100 years and no one wants anymore. Yep. What happens to all these things? What happens to these things in a country where the population is about to start declining significantly? Mm-hmm. I wonder about that. Um, we already have ghost towns throughout the United States mm-hmm. and areas where people have just moved to the city where there's no more farming, no more industry. It starts with the young people. And then, you know, there's only two people left. And um, it's that most of that just simply decays. I think uh, mm-hmm. there's a chance that as the demographic transition happens, we'll be left with many empty places that people don't want or don't want to use, which is a shame. Um that is something that, and, you know, you can take what's left of a hundred-year-old house and probably do a lot with that, the wood and the bricks. It's probably quality material. You take what's left of, you know, a mass-produced prefabricated home and there's maybe not much you can do with that because it is material that has just um, disintegrated mm. over a relatively short period of time. And are these things just unrecyclable in terms of breaking them down into their constituent pieces and making something new, or they're just unusable in their manufactured forms? Mm-hmm. I think it's hard to break them down. Uh, I mean, things like copper wire and all of those sorts of things, piping, those are all reusable. And those, once a house is deserted, people usually just often move in and take them. That was mm. a big part in our financial crisis in the late 2000s uh, when people deserted their homes, couldn't pay their mortgage. Either they took all of that with them or someone came through after the house was deserted and before the bank got to it to remove all of those. So those are the valuable parts. But I think you've got uh, things like um, particle board or, or drywall that make up a lot of parts of, of houses that, uh, though they're not, in and of themselves toxic in the way that asbestos is, they um, still hard to reuse, break down. When they break down, there's a lot of particulate matter. It's still dangerous. So I don't know that we're building, we're really been, we've really been consciously building with sustainable and reusable and safe materials. And valuable materials, it sounds like. Mm-hmm. If yeah, copper, yeah. copper is valuable in a way that particle board isn't. Oh yeah. Well, that, that is totally taken and resold and reused. That is, that is part of when you think we, in this planet, we have formal sort of waste management programs. We also have informal waste management, waste pickers, which is most people in the other parts of the world, but in an informal waste economy in the United States, where you think, oh, everything's managed by government or by private firms. Actually, one of the more visible pieces of this in the late 2000s has been the people going around stealing or taking, I think, reappropriating. I don't think stealing is necessarily the right word. These um, these uh, metals that might have been left behind. Uh, but it's so, yeah, I, I think I think of I think about that quite a lot, like what's going to happen to all these towns um, as we move, as we desert them. Are people going to live there? What is what is it going to be like? Is that going to be the affordable part of the country as I, all the cities become so unaffordable? I, I guess what I'm trying to get at is, do you think it's possible to build, like find a substitute for particle board, but that was as valuable as copper so that these things could be totally integrated? Mm-hmm. I mean, those those are two different things. But yeah, I think people are working on um, all sorts of, of ways of, of being innovative around house building. One is to use the old materials and reuse the old materials, wood, brick, and so on. Um, the other is thinking about, well, how do we use what we have? And one of the things people are really interested in is 3D printing mm-hmm. of... Um, walls and planks and components of houses and if that's done with potentially that's a use of recycled plastic Mm. is to figure out a way to recycle it use um break it down and turn it into um material for a 3d printer and then kind of just print out walls and planks and so on they wouldn't be the fanciest of houses but it is 
Um, people have talked about, well, what are we going to do about, say, long-term refugee populations, which is going to be part of our, our, our world moving forward as well. Yikes. Um, yeah. As, climate, as the climate changes, we're dealing with a lot of different shifts. And but how many times can you actually cycle plastic? Not often. Um, typical plastic, maybe once or twice, if it's good quality. So that is a problem. That's a big problem with plastic. Uh, there are ways of, of improving. If you're talking about recycling back into solid plastic, you can mix it up with some virgin plastic resin. And that will um, that is something that will actually strengthen the recycled plastic. Mm. So that's mm. um, good. So we're, we're innovative, but again, we need to really be focused on, on um, returning to the good quality materials. More permanence in building. But then you come up against this huge problem of the drive for novelty. People want mm. a new... I remember I heard someone talking about, say, for example, oak furniture. Uh -huh. There's a huge amount of used oak furniture in places like the Midwest of the United States and various other places where there was a culture of having this big heavy furniture and it'll last for centuries mm -hmm. but no one wants it right right no one wants it right now mm. <laughs> things circle back but mm -hmm. oh yeah I grew up in the UK in the 1980s and there was a trend for something called distressed pine mm. And it's, you can Google it. It's horrible. I just can't imagine <laughs> that ever coming back. But, yeah, there are a lot of supplies of furniture like that. And, yeah, it's a problem. I mean, again, that is the kind of wood that you can break down, remake more True. easily. Mm -hmm. uh, so that's there. But are, right. can, What about, like, biopolymers? Or are the, Can these 3D machines be loaded with stuff that could easily be turned back into the earth or...? I like the idea that your house just starts to decay at some point, and it's just like, well, time to build a new one. You got to water it. Yeah, exactly. Yes, biological materials are not a bad idea. I mean, that's kind of how a lot of the the world has has built housing. I mean, wood is one example, but you can certainly use something that is potentially more immediately decompostable over or compostable over time. Well, like mud so brick, right? Even mud that, brick. yeah. Mud brick is cool. My parents lived in a mud brick house for a number of years that they built themselves. How was that? It was very insulated. <laughs> <laughs> very warm. A rousing endorsement. Very warm. Um, a little hard to maintain. This you have to really have some skills there. Uh, it's but it's it's a great building material. It's it's cheap. Should not be used anywhere where there are earthquakes. They were not. They were in Australia, not an earthquake zone. But it's um. It's a pretty good building material. And I've also heard that of someone suggesting that you can shred old plastic bottles and use them as kind of a, you sometimes need a sort of leavening or a lightening agent in mud bricks. Mm. So that was, someone was putting that out as a possibility. People often use straw for that. So mm -hmm. it would be an alternative. So uh, building is, yeah, because construction and demolition waste is the largest waste stream, most the heavier in terms of weight and volume. Hmm. So there's there's a lot to be thought about there. It's like sort of concrete, um, cement, sort of rubble that can be broken down but is expensive. Um, that would be, that would probably, that process, if it were effective, would save a lot of money and greenhouse gases and all of that fun stuff. And is there a lot of attention being paid to this right now? Or do you think that it's still some way off before it becomes urgent enough to become widespread? Mm -hmm. I think it's still some way off. I, I don't think people think of housing problems in terms of waste, but as in terms of building houses that are better for combating climate change and more insulated, you don't need as much air conditioning. Um, they're light, they're efficient in terms of lighting and everything else that goes with that. And there's some overlap, of course, with waste, but there's actually been some contradictions too, uh, like LEED certified buildings. These are buildings that um, are built to particular standards of energy efficiency, um, heating, cooling, et cetera, lighting, and so on. But the way you get the certification is by installing new stuff, the products mm. that have been certified, because that's kind of how the money is made. So that often means throwing away um, or 
sort of windows and, and appliances and, and um, building entirely new structures when you could be just as energy efficient using the old ones. Mm. But they don't count because they're old, so you can't buy them. And the person who makes them makes the money, and the certification happens. So, it's it's um, it's it's that's kind of one of the tragic contradictions of doing good, having proper sustainability across all the dimensions. Because we've messed things up so badly, it's really hard to fix everything. Well, there's well, it's interesting because there's pieces that move easily. If you have something like e-waste. Uh, a device has a lifetime in one country, and then when it becomes obsolete, let's say it's sold to a reseller, and then it gets a second life in a different country. Uh-huh. But it's harder for me to imagine, let's say, building fixtures or windows being sold in the same way to build to build something in sub-Saharan Africa after it gets taken apart in New York. Yeah. Is that because of the size? Is that because there's just a lot of money to be made in building things from scratch, even in sub-Saharan Africa? Is it just yeah. a networking problem? It's probably a networking problem. Hmm. Uh, I would say, because you know what does move across borders fairly readily, and that's secondhand cars. Hmm. They move all around the planet. <laughs> And across oceans, not just, I mean, in North America, they uh, many used cars from the U.S. will wind up in Mexico hmm. uh, and sold there. But that you have sense. cars going from Japan to Mozambique, for instance, through Saudi Arabia. That's one of the routes that people have identified. So I think I think the that's that's a good point that what's missing is people connected to buy and sell these things across borders. That's often the biggest driver of um, waste or things that we throw away moving from one country to another. And I how did these... Back... Oh, go ahead. Sorry, go ahead. I wanted to go back to something mentioned earlier. Well, let's go there and then we can go somewhere else. All right. So you said something about uh, per ton, the construction industry was one of the biggest waste generators, which brings mm-hmm. up an interesting point because when I was doing some research for this conversation, I came across the notion that mining under different metrics produces the most waste. And so it really seems like there's an issue with describing metrics that comes up with different solutions or different descriptions of the problem. Uh-huh. And like I think Quinn mentioned earlier, it's hard to even separate municipal from industrial waste. How much of the bookkeeping problems are hiding solutions? Oh. Hmm. Yeah, I'd have to think think carefully about that one. I mean, um, I think with, I, actually, I think I'd probably need an example of the kind of thing you're thinking about there. Well, so Just, if you have a statistic, let's say there's a, fam- there's a big statistic from, what was it, the 90s, about there being a 97 to 3 ratio of industrial waste to municipal uh-huh. waste. Yep. But... If 99% of municipal waste is waste from industrial packaging or things that are manufactured, sold into the home, and then thrown away, is that an accurate accounting of how much industrial waste is really in the waste streams? Is right. it, does it matter? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, I do think, I mean, I think, I think sort of parsing this out is one of the fascinating parts of being um, someone who studies this because I got, I got a garbologist. I got really, um, there's a chapter in my book, which is just simply the definitional chapter. Like what is a waste? Look at the waste streams. It took me, that took me over a year to write. <laughs> it was, it was the hardest chapter I kept. I mean, I was doing other things mm-hmm. clearly, but it was the hardest chapter to figure out how do I write about what is a waste and how they're categorized? Because there are categories that exist from, uh, policy standpoint. So municipal solid waste is defined by where it's produced and who picks it up and 
but industrial waste is something very different. It's picked up in different ways. It comes from, and again, there's an overlap between your thinking. People tend to separate out, and I think this is possible in developed countries, that you've got your zones where people live and offices, and then the zones where there's big factories. And so you can separate it out. But in most parts of the world, and I think increasingly everywhere, where people live and where they work in offices is now also workshops and, and things where things are made, clothing and appliances and so on. And that gets shipped. I mean, that gets, um, that waste is industrial, but it kind of gets picked up in non-industrial by, by the sort of the local waste companies. Mm -hmm. So I think it is, it is really, even from a policy standpoint, how you can figure out who picks the stuff up, <laughs> where it's taken to, and how it's dealt with is very blurred in real life. Hmm. And then when you start to think about, well, what's got an afterlife, what doesn't, what can be recycled, what shouldn't be, it starts to get really, really interesting, but also really, really hard to parse out. So I think, I think basically there is kind of a, a sticking to these categories that are policy-driven, which um, can be less helpful, especially as you start to think about waste as not something that is just taken away and thrown away, but something that is also contains a lot of value. Because mm. then you've got to start asking, where does it go? Who buys it? Who sells it? Who gets the value? Who, who owns it? <laughs> That's mm. another whole critical piece about waste and um, your solution set starts to evolve at that point because you're really talking about manipulating markets or connecting buyers to sellers well uh -huh. this is even larger because the question of who owns it is a question of rental versus legal ownership right where you see this with digital stuff on earth where it's possible to buy a digital copy of something but you never really have the full rights to the digital copy. It can be removed from you at any time. Oh, yeah. And there's a lot of, I don't know, I'm not sure if you saw this. I think it was a World Economic Forum video where they were talking about what the world was going to look like after the COVID pandemic. And there was a phrase that was, you will own nothing and be happy. And oh, that's rich. <laughs> right exactly and so <laughs> you're in the world economic firm okay and we will own everything but to <laughs> yes exactly let me just precisely what has happened okay <laughs> i'm sure they meant it less evilly yeah i'm sure i'm sure it wasn't evil but what i was thinking i started thinking about that and i was thinking about we talked to someone else who was working on a blockchain stewardship technology for rare earth metals mm. where you mm -hmm. manufacture a cell phone and the company doesn't sell you the materials in the cell phone. They still own all the gold, all the chips, whatever is inside of it, Rare all the glass, earth. the screens, the bits and bobs. And once you are done with it, they take it back. Uh, uh -huh. and, yeah. so, yep. and so when you say like who owns the waste, it seems like there might be this move towards centralizing ownership as a side effect of the immense problem of waste. Mm -hmm. I, there's not really yeah. a question in there, I'm sorry. <laughs> no, that, that's, I mean, because that's, that's how people are thinking about a lot of waste management practice, especially around plastics, because mm. we call it extended producer responsibility. So to somehow make the people who produce the plastics pay into a fund to recycle or deal with the plastic safely. And the idea being they're paying enough to incentivize switching out of disposable plastics, or they literally have to take things back like electronic appliances. Um, mm -hmm. And right now that's voluntary. So I own this laptop, I'm, but Ma um, Apple could decide, oh, we're just essentially renting it to you and we'll take it back and take the pieces. And yeah, I mean, that is something that, that people, I, I, you know, that particular notion, I think, is also a little problematic. I think that also feeds into the fact that we're not shown how to repair mm. our things anymore, mm. that knowledge is privatized. Um, I, you know, then we lose control. And not that I can disassemble this computer, but I've had computers that I could sell on or have someone fix or or pull out the, and because it was mine, that was easy to do. 
Uh, but I think I think this is you know it is it is this concentration of power. I mean, you think about the music. I yeah, I was scrolling through Spotify for one of my favorite songs yesterday, and it had been yanked. And at some point, it's going to appear back. Hmm. But I'm like, I Spotify is free. But if the same thing happened on iTunes for the same song, I paid ninety nine cents for that, <laughs> or dollar ninety nine, however much it was at the time. What do you mean I don't own it? It's a really big shift in how people think about things. And then, you know, sort of the stuff you put out on the sidewalk, um, that I think in some places that doesn't belong, that can be public. People Mm. can come and take it legally Mm. as long as it's not on your public property. I think that's sort of a legal principle. Like if you've left some incriminating documents in Mm. there, Mm -hmm. the police can come and take that without a warrant because you left it out on the sidewalk in your trash. So that's yet another ownership model that is, that is historically true and, and useful. But yeah, I I think extended producer responsibility is, is really interesting and can be highly problematic and it can be highly useful. It just depends on how it's it's done. But like yeah. so many technologies uh, on earth. Yeah. I mean, I remember the days when we didn't own our phones. At least this was true in the UK. Hmm. Our landlines and Australia, we rented the equipment from the company. And you rented it for years and years and years and years and years, and you wound up paying them like several thousand dollars over the course of the appliance's lifetime. Whoa. And this, that, that was, of course, some people really benefited from that. Is that and still the case? No, no. Um, not anymore. It was when I left England. I remember when I moved to the US, hmm. um, I was totally appalled by the fact that, that AT&T, whoever it was, didn't provide me with a phone that I had to go out and buy it. <laughs> That was a huge culture shock moment, but I got over it. <laughs> You're like, this is actually several thousand dollars cheaper than I would have paid otherwise. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> but, so, yeah. So what are you working on right now? Um, I'm trying to pull together a bunch of projects. Uh, I am I am still working on what how waste travels globally and what's happening um, to global recycling chains, especially plastic, once... China sort of stopped um, waste entering its borders, but I'm also working on some very local stuff, like how the city of Berkeley uh, is enacting measures to reduce single-use foodware and littering. And I'm also working right now, I'm working on a paper on disaster waste, uh, which is a new project that I'm hoping to get off the ground and thinking about what, how are we going to cope, what do we do, how do we think about all the stuff that's left after a war, an earthquake, but in my field, because I'm I teach in global environmental politics, it's waste from climate change events like hurricanes, um, fires, floods that are increasingly growing in scale and um, and how often they occur. And so what do we do with that waste? What does it mean? What does it symbolize? And again, that kind of goes back to both dealing with it, trying to figure out what's valuable, who owns it, what we do with it. It's it's often a real mix of hazardous waste and maybe human remains as well. So it becomes very um, powerful and important, but we don't really know what to deal with, how what to do with it. And just as a, a symbol of how, you know, we're, we're just of sort of deterioration as, as a society that we just have all of this stuff that we can't deal with. Our, we're unraveling at such a rapid pace that we just can't cope with what's left behind, which is a terribly depressing thing to say. But um, that's sort of how I've been thinking about it and in manifesting as not just a practical problem, but a broader cultural and social political problem as well. Do you think that it reflects on a broader inability to deal with things past their point of usefulness it seems like there's a cultural tendency like old people are treated the same way that say old houses are in some ways Mm -hmm. which is a heavy thing to say but it is that yeah um yeah we and that i think there's a strong strain of thought that talks about, you know, like refugees too, climate refugees. There's this notion that, oh, they're just kind of, we don't want them, they're disposable. And it is, it is, um, it is pretty scary. And I think we're just, yeah, we're really, I think the connections that garbologists make 
can really highlight these social inequalities and global problems as much as, again, the garbage we put out on the streets. But, you know, I think, um, you know, disasters can lay bare existing problems as well. Like who's affected by disasters the most, who gets displaced um, from wherever it was they were living so that brand new condos, flood safe can be um, put up. That's that's waste. Um, what do we learn about what was going on? I think that, uh, let's say, Hurricane Florence a few years ago in the Carolinas, where it's a big area of industrial pig farming, those huge lots that are just so cruel and so horrible, um, were destroyed in the hurricane. And so you had this, these floods, but there were also this horrible, huge, toxic mass of not just pig carcasses, but also the antibiotics and all the medications and things that have been used to you know, grow those pigs to meet sort of our demands for cheap meat. And that um, that is really, you know, that's so I think that sort of waste, the revelation of waste and debris tells us a lot about what's been going on beforehand and how. And is there some way, is there some way to look into history in order to be able to chart a path forward? Like, is this a crisis that humans just arrive at at a certain point of density and development and they just have found ways to get through? Or is this a really unique moment in Earth history? Yeah. Well, we're at an interesting place. Yeah, I think we've, we've reached a very fascinating juncture in that you've got very high awareness in a lot of parts of the world about we can't do this, we can't keep doing it, we've got to reduce, we've got to have zero waste, we've got to... Um, redesign products. We've got to figure out ways of reusing what we throw away. Um, and that that's become really important, I think, in a lot of cities and places um, with some powerful opponents, but it's still important. So, well, it seems really in- important with the consumers yeah. for sure. Yeah. But if it's most of the waste is coming from the industry, how do you make it important to them? Oh, well, um, again, you can you make it economically important if they can pr- reproduce things at um, the same cost, uh, then you've got more incentive to recycle. But you might have to legislate. The European Union has le- legislates things like um, secondhand content of manu- remanufactured goods. Um, I think there are rules about like cars that have to contain a certain amount of secondhand material. So it comes from legislation and often innovation follows legislation. If that's that, if that's the right, if it's done right with the right intentions, it's not just about controlling and stopping people from doing things or benefiting a particular constituency. It's also designed to be about encouraging innovation. So Mm. um, that's Mm. good. Design can make things uh, more functional. I mean, I do have, a sort of more positive view of human nature when I can. And that is, I think that humans feel instinctively that throwing a lot of stuff away is not good. Hmm. You, um, oh, so no you place what, that on the level of instinct. But like, um, deeply ingrained norm, potentially instinct. I, I'm not a psychologist. Sure. So I'm more comfortable actually saying it's kind of like a norm that has been part of human history. Um, throughout human societies have not been hugely wasteful in the way that we are today. So what well, happened? I mean, so like you say that there's a greater awareness now than there ever has been in the history of waste. Mm-hmm. But it seems like this is a worse problem than it's ever been before as well. Yes. So what happened? That's the contradiction. Because the flip side is that we've got like ever increasing volumes of waste in a society that's caught up in just the culture of disposability. And I also think you've got transitions happening in other parts of the world. Urbanization carries with it a shift away from waste, types of waste that people traditionally have used or throw away to like these vast volumes of plastic and paper and so on. And I mean, it sounds really deterministic to say, oh, everyone moves into a city and suddenly they're just using plastic and non-biodegradable substances. But I think that what we don't have there is the the, um, infrastructure to pick it up. We don't have good alternatives. So I think we've got this sort of these two things kind of colliding and I'm not quite sure which way it's going to go. 
Well, it's interesting. I totally agree that the humans seem to really want to live clean. And they re- like this culture of disposability is losing popularity. But there's also this other thing that's not really human, right? Which is the need for growth. And this, like from an economic standpoint, from a financial standpoint. Or even beyond that, just a love of convenience. Well, it's the right? wallet. It's the pocketbook. So it's like these large people are just, you know, you know, people have their money in index funds. They're just going to support whoever's making them money. And mm-hmm. so the corporations are driven not really by a human concern so much as by this incessant need to grow. Yep. Yes. I mean, you see that this is why we have planned obsolescence in the electronics industry, because nearly everyone on the planet has a cell phone now. There's no no way you can expand sort of laterally. So to make money, you've got to continuously require people to buy the new cell phone every few years, for instance. And that's that's a very exploitative business model. And it's a feedback Uh, loop because people then invest their money in the stock market, which is just being pushed around to whoever's making the most money. And uh and you kind of lose the human thread. Right. People are distanced is the word that I like using a lot, that we're distanced both geographically from, say, where our food comes from, where our waste goes, uh, but we're also distanced sort of psychologically. It's, we're not, it's not, a lot of things are no longer visible to us. You know, you press, press a button and your money is transferred from one thing to another or you press another button and something arrives from Amazon the next day. So you don't need to go out and shop for it. Um, and there's also the illusion of being a responsible recycler too, right? Mm-hmm. Where you have your bin and you put your things in the bin and someone's going to come and take it and it's going to be okay. But you mentioned that there's been a significant change in the way that recycling moves around the world. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, very. The markets that we had overseas for the plastics that we were not recycling at home and could not have closed off. Mm. So in the US, for example, and other industrialized countries, we're now having to really deal with a massive pileup of plastics that would have been sent overseas. And some more of them might have been dealt with under bad conditions, but it was a market. And now we don't have that. So plastics, things we think we're putting in the blue bin and doing good things with aren't necessarily going at all. And it's unclear you know, how much was being recycled in the first place. Uh, it turns out the statistics I see are that 9% of plastics get recycled in the U.S. And I think it's probably quite a bit less than that now that China's no longer taking it. So do you see that there's a shift coming because of this pressure or are you less hopeful about it than that? Um, I'm Right now, I'm less hopeful. Uh-oh. I go through phases, but I think what we can't do is control everything. And one thing that's happened is the price of oil, which has collapsed. And that means that virgin plastic is a lot cheaper than um, creating secondary plastic from recycles. Um, because you know, of shipping costs? Uh, no, no, just simply the cost of recycling plastic is much more like taking used plastic and turning it into... Um, Secondary content for like, I don't know, Coke bottle or something mm-hmm. like that is um, much higher now than actually just manufacturing it from What oil. is that? How is, oh, oh, from manufacturing from oil. Because well, it's a yeah. dirty process, right? Like there's a lot of pollution that comes out of Very it. There's probably a process. lot of taxes. Yep. It's, and it affects um, low-income communities and, and communities of color. Very badly. I mean, I think that argument is one of the most salient about against plastics mm-hmm. is they're not waste is one big problem, but what happens in their manufacturers is a really big one as well. Um, so yeah, so there was another piece to that. The piece was with the cessation of the movement of recycling. What's mm-hmm. going to happen and why aren't you necessarily optimistic about it? Right. Yes. So that was that was one reason. The other reason I've, I've gotten less optimistic about the durability of um, zero waste and their, their importance is actually through the COVID-19 epidemic, pandemic, that for one thing, we suddenly, everyone like stopped using reusable bags, reusable mugs, reusable cups because mm. they were dangerous. That we've gotten over a little bit. 
because we've realized that the virus doesn't live on surfaces, at least not yet. But I think also just the amount of medical waste, masks, um, gloves, um, face shields, all of those those things that are now entering the environment, all the plastic wrapping mm-hmm. around the takeout food that everyone's been ordering um, for ages, that's all been quite, um, that's all vastly increased the waste stream. And it's basically just going into landfill or littering the streets. There's, they're finding masks now. There's a huge problem with plastics and the ocean is now being augmented by face masks. Mm. Uh, so that's the problem, but also realizing how powerful the plastic industry is in all of this, that they were really pushing for getting rid of um, reusables and saying plastics mm. are the only safe way to handle, you know, a safe and hygienic way to stop the spread of the virus and households. Again, not true, but they won that round. Sure. I think a lot of people don't think about plastics as being tied to pegged even to the oil industry. It's oh. it's sort of in a different part of their head. I, I I even knew that, and it still sounded strange to me. Yep, it's really hard to connect. But now, I think one of the big challenges is also that the oil companies are seeing that we're seeing a great. This is again, you get to that trade off, but are seeing greater shifts towards renewables in many countries that previously had been much more reliant on fossil fuels. So there's been a push towards petrochemical the petrochemical side of the sector, which means plastics manufacturing, among other things. So that's that's unfortunate, very unfortunate. And so what's what does the future hold? Because this seems this paints a very dark picture for humans sinking in a morass of plastic waste and all of these. And I know that it can be very hard to be optimistic. But it can be. Um, <laughs> I try and be. But in a I mean, best, in a, what's a best case scenario? Like a, a, best case a realistic scenario. best case scenario. Is there a way to get the corporations to make money by making the earth a better place? That's a really best case scenario. <laughs> I like that. If they care about the long term, is to make the recycling industry as powerful as possible. Mm. Um, yes. Well, I think I think part of it is really realizing this um the extent of this problem and empowering the notion that waste can be valuable Mm. and empowering and protecting the people around the world whose job this is whose livelihood it is but it's still dangerous and still precarious so that would be important um i do think that i think we've got a better shot with zero waste i think we've got like good shots with compost composting dealing with plant waste, organic waste. Um, I think if someone invents a solution to plastics, like an alternative to plastics will be in great shape. Um, It's a bit like um, the comparison I make is when we were destroying the stratospheric ozone layer through chlorofluorocarbons Mm -hmm. and um, the chemical companies came up with a substitute. So it became much more soluble as a problem. It's like, okay, no, we'll just switch to this. Other chemical, admittedly mm. a chemical that destroys the climate, but now we've got others <laughs> that are less destructive. But um, photosynthesizing but, uh, biopolymers, yes, <laughs> worked for us on yes, our planet. We, yes, we need <laughs> exactly. We need technologies from from everywhere we can find them. So before we start using outer space as a garbage dump, so I, I think I think we'll get. We need to kind of embrace both the. The design and production parts, the sort of clean parts of the circular economy, but also embrace dealing with the trash that we have, with the reservoirs of trash that are everywhere from that have been gathering for decades. And and like, how do we how do we sort of handle this? Do we try and extract? Do we engage in mining? Do we encourage waste picking on an informal level in a way, again, that's safe, like incorporating those workers into a municipal waste workforce for these, com- these cities that are growing so quickly? So there's a lot of big questions. I, I, you know, we don't, haven't really touched on what's going to happen with hazardous and nuclear, wa- nuclear waste a little bit, but um, how I think we've made quite a lot of progress in using fewer hazardous chemicals in mm. a lot of different processes. Pesticide use is changing a lot. Um, I think there's a lot more rules and regulations. Seems like a lot of that's been driven by lawsuits too. Like yeah, those comp- mm-hmm. Right. It's like exactly. it's not profitable to kill off lots of people because if they find out, they're going to be pissed yeah. and want money. Yes, exactly. 
and there are people on their side who will um, be active about that. I mean, we've got a lot of brave activists, often women, uh, who have been very critical in pushing for laws and changes of practices around hazardous chemicals and substances. Mm. Mm. That's interesting. You mentioned that they're women. Yeah. Yes. Um, Do you think that that's because women are inherently more attuned to this? Oh, what would I say to someone visiting the planet about that? I think that <laughs> Is this a sexual dimorphism? <laughs> um, I think that the structures of our society have meant that women are more likely to be the primary caregivers of the children, as well as often holding the more often holding exposed low wage jobs. Um, so I think they mm. both have that awareness of children's health and their own health. Mm. Um, I think women have cancers like breast cancer, ovarian cancer that are very visibly triggered. We're much more aware of how they're triggered by outside chemicals and those, those sorts of cancers are more visible than, than male cancers. But I, I think, yeah, there's sort of a, an element of caring that you might say women have more, but I think that, I think it has to do with the way that, that patriarchal structures have made women more vulnerable and children are vulnerable and women are often the primary caregivers for the children. So I think that's, that's partly why. Listen to your ladies, man. Dudes, mm -hmm. boys. Yes, yes. Well, it's yep. been really wonderful to talk to you. Do you have? Yeah. Did Did you have all your questions answered, Quinn? I mean, I, I even as we're sitting here talking, I have a whole well of questions, but I think that they might be left better for another conversation after I've had a moment to gather my thoughts. I'm particularly curious about the sort of the movements of hazardous waste, the movement of electronic waste, the way that a new generation of electronic devices is going to create totally new streams of hazardous waste that humans haven't dealt with before. I'm obsessed with the idea that the crisis on the planet is largely due to the prevalence of hazardous chemicals that have been leaked into the environment, perhaps mm -hmm. at, you know, some steady level, and they've combined and recombined into something that's an even more toxic soup than it started, but there's mm -hmm. no data on it. And so I feel like there's this quiet crisis that is hidden under the concern for carbon dioxide levels but in reality is just threatening the stability of all of life on earth because of these things like reproductive cancers and uh -huh. colon cancers and what's in the food supply. And so it's a huge, huge field. I uh -huh. guess fundamentally my question is this, do you feel like the solutions for this are political in nature? Like you're a political scientist who studies waste. Are the solutions yes. political? Yeah. Um, I mean, I would say they're all political, but I would say, yes, there's an element we have. We have made so many advances in our understanding of plastics and their long-term health impacts across ecosystems and into humans. I think finding out that there are microplastics in our blood, in our feces, has been really quite shocking. And I think that's something that galvanizes opinion. So we have we have those technologies. and. And I work in an interdisciplinary field with environmental scientists and political scientists. And, and you've always got to think about, well, you've got these great solutions, but they're not just picked up and implemented. There's still more barriers, but also opportunities politically. <coughs> Excuse me. That you have, and that you have to think as you move forward, well, how do you define, defy the powerful interests who don't want you to stop using plastics? So how do you create and that's a matter of creating policy and being effective and being advocates and informing people. And then also you've got to be careful about what might be the negative impacts of doing this. Mm. Um, with plastics, I, there's very few downsides as far <laughs> as I'm concerned, but there, there are always for these big policies and maybe there's someone losing out, like getting rid of open waste dumps in a lot of cities is definitely a good thing over the longer term. It can reduce health impacts, but maybe it displaces thousands of people from their jobs and their livelihoods. You have to be aware of that and know 
what to do in that circumstance, create what we call in my field increasingly something called a just transition mm. from the world we're in today to the world that we want, because that transition needs to, needs to be fair. And if we go to this great, clean, technological, circular economy, carbon-free world, well, without that's great, but what damage should we cause on the way? What do we need to pay attention to as we did that? So that, that's why it becomes political. That's a beautiful answer. Thank you so much. You're welcome. And so you have you have two books written. One, the more uh -huh. recent one, is Waste. Yes. And that's sort of about the movement of waste through the global economy, waste pickers, which uh -huh. we've talked about briefly. And waste pickers are basically people that make their living going through trash and harvesting what they find. Yeah. And collecting trash from households and, yeah, reusing and, and upcycling and, and so on. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And the second book is from a few years ago. It's more technical. I don't remember the title exactly. Um, well, I have three books, but two books on three waste. Books. Uh, the book in between is the Environment and International Relations. So it's a text about global environmental politics, which is what I teach. Mm. And then um, Waste Trading Among Rich Nations, uh, Building a New Theory of Comparative Regulation. That was my PhD dissertation. <laughs> so I had to have a long title. Now I get to write books for the title like Waste. It's much better. But yeah, that was that was definitely, that was on the, the hazardous waste trade specifically. But I remembered that it was a drier title than Waste. Oh, goodness, yes. Drier book too. <laughs> but still, I think quite good. I've been, I'd gone back to read it lately and it's still very good. I just wish I'd, you know, I would have done it differently now, mm. but... And it's technical, but it's got some good stuff in it. And I'm so sure the committee appreciated the name. Go ahead. What did you say? Oh, I was saying I'm sure her committee appreciated the name. <laughs> they did. <laughs> they did. <laughs> well, I've got my money on you humans, literally. So I hope you guys can figure this out. <laughs> well, the more help we get, the better. So thank you. Thank you for being interested. Thank you so much thank for you, talking Dr. to us, Dr. Neil. Yep. Bye. Okay. Bye. Bye. Thank <laughs> you.